Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this live episode of the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. I'm your host, Chris Dahl, and over the next hour, I'll be posing your questions about the COVID-19 pandemic to Dr. Michael Osterholm. If you haven't already, you can send us your questions, uh, you can send your questions to us on Twitter using the hashtag Osterholm Update Live. So we'll start this episode of the Osterholm Update, as we usually do, with Dr. Osterholm's dedication and his views on the current state of the pandemic. And then we'll start taking your questions and we'll try to get to as many questions as possible. So, uh, Mike, we'll start with you. And who are you dedicating this special live episode of the podcast to? Well, first of all, thank you very much, uh, uh, Chris. Again, thank you to the production staff and thank you to all of you who are actually on live with us here. Uh, based on emails I received uh, over the last couple of days, I, it's fair for me to say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, as I know we have people from Europe to Asia who are joining us tonight. And as always, we appreciate so much having you with us and uh, sharing this time. Uh, tonight, I actually have a, a, a double uh, dedication, uh, somewhat uh, different yet fitting. Um, actually, today would be my mother's 89th birthday if she were alive. She died in 2017, Abigail Ryan. Uh, 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 quite a lady. And so, Mom, this one's dedicated to you and uh, the legacy that your family still carries on. Uh, the second part of the dedication is a more sober one and one that uh, nonetheless is, I think, uh, so timely and important right now. And this is dedicated to all the public health officials who around the world are dealing with this uh, terrible pandemic and who are also dealing with a pandemic of, in many cases, uh, uh, anger, uh, they're dealing with the issues of uh, political uh, in, uh, difficulties, etc. And for example, just in this country alone, 49 state or local public health leaders have resigned or been fired since April of this year, all over issues related to COVID. And uh, personally, as many of you know on these podcasts, uh, I have, uh, amongst others, been those who have also received uh, some of the very negative, uh, difficult, and sometimes straight out vile, threatening. Uh, kinds of communications. And so uh, as someone who's been in the public health business for 45 years, uh, I send out my strongest, strongest uh, support for all the public health people who are dealing with this in the trenches, and thank you for being there. And I want to remind everyone just how important public health is in the sense that uh, if you look since 2010 in this country, public health departments have dropped almost 16% per capita in support. And if you look at that, over 38,000 local and state health department jobs have been eliminated since 2010. And yet here it is, the time that we need them so badly, uh, they're so stretched and it's so difficult. And so to all the public health leaders, this, this podcast is for you. I want to start, Mike, with your recent op-ed in the New York Times with Minneapolis Reserve, uh, Federal Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari, in which the two of you called for a strict six-week lockdown in the U.S. to significantly reduce case transmission. 
So you've been hinting at this uh, over the last few episodes. What convinced you that this is the strategy that we need to pursue? Well, first of all, as we track the pandemic around the world and specifically in the United States, it's very clear that uh, we're on very divergent paths. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you look at uh, many of the countries that in uh, March and April into early May were literally houses on fire. Uh, they dealt with these very extreme uh, major outbreaks, just as was New York and the United States with some uh, similar situations, Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, New Orleans, Seattle. Uh, and then you look around the world, uh, look at the Asian countries, look at the European countries, uh, look at the Middle East. And one of the things that was common to all those countries that responded and subsequently have done a remarkable job of controlling this virus is in their lockdowns, in this whole issue, issue of trying to shut down the transmission, they were able to drive the virus levels to less than one case per 100,000 individuals per day. So if you look at that and look at the countries that in a sense took these huge forest fires of coronavirus, put them out sufficiently that they then only became small brush fires again, that they could largely handle them. And we're gonna talk more about that in a moment. So I don't wanna uh, give the sense that this is not a problem around the world, but they're in a very different position than we are. On the other hand, as we so well know, who have been following this podcast, you know, we too responded with this quote unquote national lockdown, although I would suggest it was probably more of a slowdown in retrospect than a lockdown. And uh, we were at 32,000 cases in, in April uh, where in fact, uh, again, everyone realized that this was a very serious situation. Uh, we saw the physical distancing occur. We saw businesses shut down. But then by the time uh, mid to late May rolled around, uh, we'd given up, we were tired of this. The pandemic fatigue had set in. Cases were now at 22,000 a day, not 32,000. We thought that was good enough. Uh, and uh, then together with the protests that emerged on Memorial Day, um, we saw what happened over the summer. Uh, we were at 65,000 cases a day just a few weeks ago. And uh, now cases are dropping, uh, as I suggested last week. I think they will continue to drop probably in the uh, low 50s to high 40s uh, for the next few weeks. And then I feel quite certain that post uh, Labor Day, as high schools and colleges, universities all come back together, we're going to see another major forest fire explosion of cases that could far exceed what we've seen uh, in the highest numbers to date. So we kind of have this peak, case drops, a plateau, peak, a little higher than the next one, case drop, plateau. And I think that's what we're going to see with this one. And, uh, you know, that, that's just unsatisfactory, as we know, when you look what we just went through uh, six to eight weeks ago. And already I'm hearing people kind of like, well, we're through this one now, just like we felt in May, we were through what had happened in March and April. And when we look at the impact that this has on our country uh, in terms of not only just the mortality and morbidity, but what it does to so many of our economies at the state and local level, it's substantial. And so I, I've had the good fortune of working with Neil over the past uh, uh, few months and the, his excellent team at the Federal Reserve in here in Minneapolis. And we decided that really the only way that we're going to get through this until the time a vaccine might be available uh, and have the least impact on health as well as the economy 
is to actually do a real lockdown, another one, where this time we don't give up and this time we really look at it. I mean, we had states where 70 to 80% of workers were declared essential workers when in fact, uh, the best data we have says probably only about 35% of them really were. I mean, we just never really locked down like these other countries did. Now people can say, we can't go through this again. We won't go through this again. And I understand that. Trust me, I get it. I, I'm not so naive as to think that uh, it's just an easy thing to do. But let's just take a step back and look what the cost will be if we don't. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank has looked at this. If we continue to see these large case numbers increasing, uh, we won't be opening schools and keeping them open. Uh, we're gonna see major impact on business. We're gonna see very high absenteeism, uh, people not being able to come to work, and unemployment's gonna increase. And actually, it turns out that we've had this un amazing uh, kind of a phenomenon occur where because we aren't spending money during the pandemic, the savings rate in this country has jumped dramatically from eight to 20%. And the Federal Reserve Bank has looked at this and said, you know what, we could actually support our recovery payments so that businesses, individuals, uh, cities, uh, states, all could be made whole and that we could take that money that we have invested in savings in this country and basically borrow on it to pay for all of these people so that we're not asking anyone to lose a job, uh, not get paid, to have a business that goes under because that can't uh, be supported and use that as the way to move forward. And if we were able to do that for six weeks, we could really drive this virus into the ground if we were able to keep the distancing then our job would be after that is to manage it like the other countries around the world are, where a combination of testing, some contact tracing, uh, putting your foot on the brake in such a way that you actually, uh, you know, put it a little harder when we're starting to see case numbers increase, uh, take it and uh, move it down uh, or move it back up when we see things recovering. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in our country right now, we also have an incredible example of what this means. And, uh, it would look no further than what we see in New York. You know, after uh, what happened uh, in March, uh, it was a tragedy. And, and I wanna add that, uh, you know, the early days of the New York experience were really horrible, uh, whether it be in the hospitals and the long-term care facilities, et cetera. But they saw the wisdom of this lockdown and really maintaining it to the point of where they could drive these numbers down. And I just wanna point out for you what New York did because they're an island in this country. If you look at the other 49 states and the District of Columbia, nobody's done this except New York. Um, if you look at the seven-day average for cases that they had in the state of New York, on April 10th, when things were kind of a house on fire there, they had 9,877 cases reported that day, 9,877. By June 20th, they had that down to 662 cases a day. By August 10th, they had it down to 651 cases a day, much lower than even the state of Minnesota's with a much larger population. If you look at deaths, it's even more dramatic. Uh, in the sense, April 10th, they had 921 deaths that day. These are seven-day rolling averages. If you look at June 20th, they had 39 deaths. And if you look at August 10th, they only had eight deaths in the entire seven-day rolling average. So here they've been flat in cases since June. They surely still have economic issues in places like New York City. I don't want to pretend that it's all perfect and back, but they've done what the rest of the country can do. 
And so I, I, I raise this not because I'm naive and think that everyone here is just going to jump on board and say, oh, we'll go through that again. That's not a problem. And they'll tell me about the mental health challenges and the depression. And I understand all of those. But I can tell you that if we have to go through another six to eight months before we might have a vaccine and we see these large increasing case numbers, it will be much, much worse. This is the vision of what will be. And I'm proposing, and Neil, along with me, a vision of what could be. And I think this is an important thing to consider. Do we take our medicine now? Do we take it later? And again, we still have to invest in the public health system. We're still going to have to get on top of these cases as they occur, even after we do the lockdown. But I believe that we will be in a position just as many countries around the world have done. And if you want to get a sense of that, I, I just look at uh, the United States and, uh, and the comparison to the EU and, and United Kingdom together now. If you look at uh, the EU and the United Kingdom together have about 510 million people. The United States has 330 million. So we're, if you look at that, uh, they're about one and a half times larger than we are. Yet if you look at the number of cases, they've had a total of 1.8 million, we've had 5 million, only about 35% of ours. And death-wise, they basically have had less than 8,000 deaths combined. We've had over 55,000. Now, much of that occurred in the earliest days of the EU challenge. If you actually look at the last 90 days, they have been substantially lower than we have, much lower. If you look at the Asian countries, they've been much lower. And so I, I really want to come back to that. And the other thing that's most notable is the unemployment rates for both countries dropped substantially into the 20% level back in April. Today, the unemployment rate in the EU is 6.4%. In the United States, is 10.2%. Economically, they're coming back. And that's where we're going to see the jobs come back. That's where we're going to basically see this improvement. So the people who tell me that this is going to ruin our economy, it's just the opposite. And I'm not an economist. We all know that. Uh, but I have the good fortune to serve on this paper with one who really is and who has an incredible team of economists behind him. And so I just put this out here and say, uh, you know, as I've said before on these podcasts, you can pay me now or you'll pay me later phenomena. Either we're going to deal with this now or we're not uh, uh, going to enjoy the kind of things we're seeing happen in other countries around the world. And we're going to have an ongoing uh, unmitigated disaster. Now, that may not be sufficient enough to motivate people to do this. But just remember, we had an opportunity. This, I don't think, is probably going to be our last one. I, I mean, I just can't imagine if we don't do it now, we're not going to do it. And we're just going to basically barrel through what's going to be really, really tough for the next five, six, seven months. And uh, so I'm, I'm hoping we can appeal to some reason. I don't think this has to be a national issue. I don't believe we have the national will to do this. But as I gave the example for the state of New York, they've done it. They have done it. I give them great credit for what they've done. They are a model for us. When you would say, oh, I don't want to be a model like New York. Well, I'm just taking principle what they've been able to do. And so um, I'm hoping that uh, this discussion continues. Uh, there was, surely was a lot of discussion in the New York Times. Uh, our op-ed piece was downloaded more than a million times by over the weekend. Uh, and I think people are surely looking at it. And uh, this is not naive again. This is really about what we must do. 
Well, uh, Mike, I want to get to another question here about uh, the international situation. And speaking of countries that were models, um, New Zealand today announced that it detected four COVID-19 cases after 102 days, after 102 days with no reported cases. This really just seems to emphasize how hard it is to control this virus. You know, this is exactly what we've been talking about, uh, the leaky bucket virus that I've shared with you over and over again, that this is going to find a way to get out. Uh, and whether you look at what's happened in New Zealand, which is, to me, most remarkable, because these four cases, by the way, were among people who never traveled, had no contact with anyone who traveled outside of New Zealand. Uh, and they really, at this point, are lost for understanding how they got infected. Uh, but New Zealand, because it's an island, because they were very aggressive, have for, as you pointed out, the last 100 days not had any evidence of any cases at all and have really gone on with life pretty much as normal. Um, again, while this is a challenge, it is so different than what we're dealing with here. And if you look at the rest of the countries, whether it be uh, Korea, uh, Japan, China even, if you look at the European countries that have really managed us, or look to our neighbors to the north in Canada, doesn't mean that cases won't occur, but it does mean that uh, it's a, a one of those opportunities where we can manage it more like the brush fire that it is, rather than a huge coronavirus forest fire. And that's what we really are trying to do here. And that's what the countries around the world are doing. And I, and I, I don't want to sound naive and to suggest, well, that, that'll be fine. It's going to be a challenge. Uh, this is a pandemic virus that we've been talking about. How many of you on this uh, podcast have sent in emails or said to me, well, if we just did it like Sweden, or if we just did it like uh, so many other countries, uh, you know, that's how we should do it. Vietnam, uh, a country that's near and dear to my heart. I spent substantial time there last year. I know the public health professionals in Vietnam. They are in superb and they went uh, literally several months, no cases, no deaths, and look what's happened. But it still is much, much smaller than we're seeing going on here in this country. So I think we can do it, uh, and it's gonna be a constant pressure until we get vaccines, uh, but uh, uh, we have to understand on an international level, this virus is gonna be a constant pressure on, on public health in all regards. Uh, really good questions in uh, 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 on Twitter, um, but I want to first start first. Uh, you mentioned vaccines, so uh, big news out, out today from Russia was that the Russians have approved uh, a COVID nineteen vaccine that hasn't even been through phase three clinical trials. Uh, what, what what do you make of this news, Mike? Uh, this is a propaganda stunt. Seriously, that's all it can be. Uh, no one in public health could recommend that you put forward a vaccine under the most urgent of conditions without a phase three study. Does remember last week I talked about the different phases and the fact that you need to understand more about how well it works, how safe it is, et cetera, in these larger studies. Uh, and I think you've heard today from the public health community around the world, including the World Health Organization, of uh, the grave concern about what uh, they've done in Russia. And uh, you couldn't get me to take this vaccine for the life of me. And I'll surely tell you, I wouldn't ever give it to any one of my loved ones or family members, and I surely wouldn't recommend it to any of you. So we need to have the kind of data that can, we can assure the public, we can assure ourselves that this vaccine is effective, that it's safe uh, to the extent that we possibly can, 
And anything short of that, I think, is dangerous public health. And what my fear is, is that if something does happen with the vaccine and uh, the human recipients in, in Russia, that'll get painted then across the board as being something that, you know, all international related vaccines will then get painted with. And I think that would be a real disservice. So, so uh, I uniformly <laughs> uh, reject what the Russians have done and think it's dangerous. So here we have a, a, a kind of a follow-up question uh, from Twitter, and this is from Jason. Um, and this is actually more about uh, the, the vaccines that are, are in phase three trials right now, which, of which there are a few. So Jason writes, assuming a vaccine is approved sometime by January, what timeline do you see for distribution and vaccination of enough people to achieve herd immunity? Uh, it's a great question, Jason, that many of us are asking ourselves every day. And the challenge we have is we're still not sure how this vaccine is going to be rolled out. Uh, when I say vaccine, I should also say vaccines, because I think you're going to see multiple vaccines coming to the market within a short time period. Um, you know, I'm presupposing that we will find uh, protection that we and it may not be the best. It may be 50 or 60 percent. We'll have to find out. Uh, I, I'm assuming that we will find that the vaccines are safe uh, at, with uh, administration and in the period of time after that. Uh, but we'll still be studying them for, for days to come, years to come, uh, to look at their durability, to look at other safety issues long-term. Um, what's gonna happen, we don't know. There are a lot of cooks in the kitchen right now in this government. Uh, number one is the fact that uh, we have the standard, what we call ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices under the auspices of the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services, which has traditionally made recommendations and helped uh, support the distribution of vaccines like this. They did the, a wonderful job in 2009 with influenza vaccines for H1N1 in that similar way. But now with Operation Warp Speed and the changes in how the U.S. government's approaching this, there's a, a major military component part of this uh, that uh, is involved with, will be involved with distribution. There's now been a group appointed through the US government uh, at the National Academy of Sciences to serve as an advisory group as to who should get vaccine when and where. All this is still churning. Uh, none of us really know yet what's gonna happen. And uh, it's gonna be very important that we figure this out soon. Uh, not only is it how we're gonna do it, but we have to get the buy-in of the public in terms of how it'll be administered, who gets it first. Uh, as you've heard me say multiple times on all right, these podcasts, I believe very strongly that healthcare workers who are on the front line should get it first. Uh, I know that I've been accused of protecting our own. I'm not one of them, but they're putting their lives aligned every day to take care of patients with COVID-19 and we need to keep them there and we need to protect them. Uh, but there's a number of people shortly thereafter, particularly people at high risk of having serious uh, outcomes if they get infected, uh, other essential workers that are critical. There's been discussions about the military, law enforcement, there's all kinds of things. We've got to work that out. We can't have a crisis at the time that the vaccine becomes available. And I think there will hardly be a, a, a uniform decision that everyone will agree with, uh, but we've got to have a way to look at that. And we also have to look at, if there are multiple vaccines, how do they get decided who gets which one uh, and, and what that might look like. So uh, it's a great question. Uh, it is a critical part of the completing the R&D research 
kind of picture for uh, developing vaccines all the way to their final administration. As you've heard me say multiple times, a vaccine is interesting, but it's nothing until it's a vaccination, until it's in someone's arm, and that's what we have to work on. So, so we're working on that one, and uh, stay tuned. <laughs> We have um, a follow-up uh, question from Gary, um, and this is actually gets to, I guess, kind of a post-vaccine world. Uh, Gary writes, with this being a, a zoonotic disease, as you have said, it will always be with us. What, is the, what are the potential scenarios for this disease, perhaps three to five to 10 years from now? Well, thank you, Gary, uh, and Jason, too. Great questions. Uh, uh, we don't know. Let me just say that this virus is now in humans. It's going to stay in humans. Um, we won't eradicate it any time uh, in my lifetime from human population. What we don't yet know, and which is going to be a critical piece of the coronavirus uh, COVID-19 puzzle, is what happens with durable immunity. If, in fact, we are only protected for a limited period of time after we've either been infected or after we've received a vaccine, if we do get infected again, what's that illness look like? Is it the same illness? Is it a different kind of illness that where there's now partial immunity? Uh, will it be more severe or less severe? And we just don't know any of that. And so this is why I think this is the classic what we call disease X in our business. It's kind of if you had to pick the worst combination of, of an infectious agent to cause the next pandemic, what it would be? And this is it, I think, in a sense. Uh, with influenza, we feel much more confident that uh, if we have a pandemic strain emerge, uh, we know uh, that you, if you get it, survive, you're going to have protection for probably the rest of your life for that specific strain. Uh, we know our vaccines will give us a, you know, a certain level of protection, uh, and we know that this will become part of the seasonal flu picture year after year once it goes through its pandemic stages. We just don't know here. We're in uncharted territories with the coronavirus. So I think at this point, um, my sense is, is that there's not going to be durable immunity. We just have to accept that. Uh, how long we're going to be immune for, I don't know. Uh, and I think that's true for both clinical disease and for vaccination. Uh, I would not be surprised if, in fact, you see this disease manifest quite differently on a second or third infection as opposed to, say, for example, a pneumonia. It could be a diarrheal-type disease uh, with what we know about coronaviruses in general. Uh, but so, so just know that it's going to be here and know we're going to deal with it. And the final piece, which I think is really a, at the heart of also your question, is don't expect it to be the last one of these to emerge. You know, as a human population with over 8 billion people on the face of the Earth today and with our interface with the animal kingdom as it is, it's so intense, both as food production animals and even uh, the kind of animals we, you know, in the wild where we're, we're uh, consuming them as food animals, um, we're having exposure to all of this assortment of viruses and unique uh, infectious agents that are in that animal population. This is why One Health, that concept of animals and humans together are really, really very important. So uh, I have no uh, sense at all that this is gonna be the last one of these to, to pop up. And it's all the more reason why uh, as we finish this pandemic off uh, the best we can, we have to be prepared for the next one, if not sooner. So our next question is from Steve. Uh, and Steve asks, how can the public choose which experts to trust when the WHO, the CDC, American Medical Association, 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, prominent modelers, state and local health departments, and, and SIDRAP, among others, may take positions that seem at odds with each other. If we as a, a nation can't even agree on which expert to listen to, what hope do we have of finding the right path out of the COVID-19 forest fire? Uh, this is a tough question. <laughs> uh, you know, I find myself in the middle of some of this, so I, uh, I have, I'm not sure how much I'm part of the solution, how much I'm part of the problem. Um, let me just say that this has been an extremely frustrating experience for those of us who have dealt with information to the public and over the course of decades. Uh, this pandemic has uh, obviously consumed uh, the news media, uh, in many cases, uh, the majority of the day. Uh, it surely is front and center uh, in discussions about lives. Uh, you know, we've shut down businesses, we've uh, closed schools, we've stopped sports. I mean, look at all the, the trans air transport, look at all the things. So it makes sense that it's front and center. But what's happened is we've had a, an explosion of experts. And, uh, you know, I, I have promised you on these podcasts, as well as anything we come up with SIDRAP, you know, the most important thing we'll promise you is we'll just always tell you the truth. If we don't know, we'll tell you we don't know. If we do know, we'll tell you how we know and why. Um, you know, I, I at, at the <laughs> risk of uh, making you wonder if I know anything, you know, uh, as the staff will tell you here, uh, the people who help put this podcast together. It's not unusual for me in a week preparing for a podcast to spend 12, anywhere from 10 to 20 hours getting prepared. Uh, you know, going back in and doing deep research to understand what we know and what we don't know. Uh, I'm an epidemiologist. I'm not an aerobiologist. I'm not a, uh, you know, an industrial hygienist. I'm not a clinician. I'm not an immunologist. And what we have, have had happen is a lot of people who are coming from those disciplines have suddenly become an expert on the entire topic. And I've been extremely frustrated to see people who frankly don't know what in the hell they're talking about. Now the voice of expertise on, on 24 seven news or the soundbite in any number of major news stories. So if it's frustrating for us and at SIDRAP, we deal with this a lot. We talk about it a lot uh, because we always make it our front and center position is basically if we don't know, say it, if we do know, how do we know it and why? And so I can't imagine how it might be for you. Uh, and uh, I, I, I would like to maybe just give some examples tonight that might be helpful. First of all, Steve uh, asked this question and Steve and I actually had an opportunity to have some communication about this because he also raised a, a point about me that I thought was very important. Um, I have commented over a series of podcasts about the New York experience, which I did tonight and talked about how they got it right. But I didn't talk about that in the context of what they did at the very earliest days. I just assumed in a sense, you know, I had mentioned in a podcast some time ago, the challenges in New York. But if you just listen to the most recent podcast, you say, wait a minute, how can you say everything's okay? Remember last week's podcast, I, I addressed a question that came in from someone who was concerned about me saying New York was, was okay, when in fact they'd lost a loved one in a long-term care facility in New York. And so one of the things I will try to, try to do a better job in these podcasts is make sure there's continuity. And what I mean by that is I don't want to bore you by repeating the same thing over and over again. So somebody who's been listening to all the podcasts say, I've already heard that. But at the same time, for the new listeners, I've got to give you context. And so I, I will make an effort to do that. But, but what, let me just say a couple of things now uh, about where we're at. Um, number one is uh, the media has, has an absolute need right now 
uh, from their perspective to have expert time. And uh, oftentimes, if you're a guest on a show, I, I'm doing a number of them this week, uh, uh, talk, talk shows. And oftentimes, you have no idea what the question is going to be beforehand. And so people will go on and they will get blindsided with a question that may not even be in their area of expertise, even though they're there. And they feel obligated to answer. I don't. First of all, I don't go on shows without knowing what they're going to talk about first. Second of all, if I can't or don't want to answer that question, I don't. I answer the question I want to answer. Now, this may mean I'll never get another talk show again when people hear me say that, but they already know it. Anybody who's ever interviewed me knows that. But we don't have that kind of experience among many of the so-called experts who are out there right now who are making claims about things. Remember all the talking heads that said, oh boy, this is gonna be a seasonal virus. It's gonna go away in the summertime. And there were a lot of notable people who you know who they are. You know, we sat there and said, I don't know why you'd say that. We don't have any evidence that that's the case. And of course it didn't become a seasonal virus. I could go through a laundry list of different things like that. So at this point, I would say, uh, be skeptical of everyone, even me, be skeptical. Don't take things hook, line, and sinker. Now you're saying, but I want to know. I, I, I want that anchor, and I get that. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, uh, you know, there is one. There are several reporters who I follow very closely. I think they're some of the very best in the business. Uh, you know, and just kind of if you follow SIDRAP News, you're going to kind of know who those people are too because we tend to follow them as well as our own materials. Um, so at this point, be skeptical of, of media, et cetera, and I will try to do a better job articulating some of my concerns, and I'll do it right here tonight for you. Um, the other thing is the organizations. Um, this has been a significant challenge for me. Um, I come from public health. Public health is my foundation. It's, it's, it's kind of, you might say, the altar of my professional worship. And, and so I want more than anything for public health agencies to be at their very best. You know I've been frustrated with WHO, whether it was the slow declaration of the pandemic, uh, whether it was the issue around aerosols and recognizing the transmission issues. Uh, I've been very disappointed in CDC. There's, I have dear friends and colleagues in CDC who are doing an incredible job internally. But because of what's happened where CDC has been so minimized, uh, where they've taken positions that are not based on science, that's been really hard. Um, and so uh, I, I think we have to be very careful how we interpret information coming from there. Now, there's a lot of good information that comes out, uh, but it's hard for you to know, wait a minute, what does this mean? You know, what the school opening was a good example of what we were talking about. And so I think it is hard. Where I'm having the biggest problem with right now is the medical journals. Um, I think the editorial oversight for what's happening right now with COVID is really, really a significant problem. Um, everyone wants to publish. This is the hot thing to be in. So journals are being flooded with papers that should never get published. You know, uh, I, I used to think, you know, we were drinking out of a, a garden hose to develop our understanding of what's going on, then it got to be a fire hose. Now I feel like we're drinking a fire hose of boiling water. And I see so many bad papers getting published right now uh, where it was obvious there wasn't any oversight or review that anybody knew about that topic. And, and so I think that, and I challenge the editors of these, uh, of these journals, uh, and I recognize they have a problem. If everybody who's working on this is so busy, they don't have time to review uh, then I get it. I'm trying to do what I can in my limited way to not stop reviewing, even though, you know, we're really busy. 
because if I'm going to talk about this, I better also be part of the solution. But I know many of my colleagues who are so busy, they don't review. So now these papers are coming out and they really are a challenge. So I think that this is an issue. And let, let, me, let me just give you one that I think is an example of the challenge we have and that you might get. Over the course of the last several days, there's been a paper that's received all kinds of attention. In fact, uh, it was in all the news in the last couple of days. And this is a paper that came out from the journal General Internal Medicine, not a very common, well-known journal. And the title of it is Masks Do More Than Protect Others During COVID-19, Reducing the Inoculum of SARS-CoV-2 to Protect the Wearer. This was from Monica Gandhi and colleagues. And their whole thesis in this was basically the theory that if you're wearing a face cloth covering, you'll get less virus in, and you're more likely to have an asymptomatic infection. And so the ideal would be to get infected with this low level of these cloth face coverings, and then you would actually be protected. And last night on CNN, Dr. Gandhi actually said, and I quote, what the mask does is really reduce the amount of virus that you get in if you do get infected. And by reducing that, you have the lower dose, you're able to manage it, and you're able to have a calm response, you have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. There is simply no data to support that. This is dangerous. This kind of paper is dangerous. Now, there surely are data that would address the potential for lower dose, but we actually have data from animal challenge studies with this very virus that says no, the difference it makes in terms of who gets infected and has symptoms or not is all about the host in terms of the animal model studies. And, and I, I put this forward, I'm sure this will not be popular when Dr. Gandhi and your colleagues hear about this, that I've been really critical of this, but I don't know how did this ever get through review? I would never have accepted this paper, and I've shared it with several of my close colleagues who have said the same thing. They would never have accepted this paper. Now, I'm worried because the message to the public that came out of this is, oh, you know what? Maybe if I do get infected with my face cloth covering on, I'll just get a little sip of the virus. I'll get a mild asymptomatic infection. Now I'll be protected. That is so dangerous. That's dangerous. That's just not about right or wrong. It's dangerous. And so I, I worry about this kind of concept and without more data than they have here. And it was all, if you look at it, it's a house of cards on this paper. I didn't hear one media source challenging it. I didn't hear one person in my discipline challenge it other than our group. And that's really a concern to me. This is the kind of stuff you're getting confronted with so often. And I don't know quite how to help you other than to say, we'll do the best we can to comment on it and what to say about it. So this is a challenge. So Steve, I wish I could give you a better sense of how do we help lead you. I don't wanna sit here because it sounds so damn arrogant to say this, we'll keep trying to do the best we can to give you the context. If this were really true, this paper here, I'd be shouting it from the top of the ceiling, okay? Saying, this is really a new major finding. Let's go with it. But let me also go one more. Um, you know, I've said this multiple times on this podcast, and by now I'm sure it's, uh, you're all tired of hearing it, but, you know, all models are wrong, except occasionally some give us some useful information. Modeling is a black box statistical process that, you know, I've had enough graduate hour statistics to know a bit about them, and I still sometimes just marvel at what people do. And we have put far, far, far too much emphasis on models in the sense of trying to predict where things are going. And more importantly, the people who do the models basically have given much more certainty 
about what that model stands for or what it tells us than ever should be done. Because in most instances, the assumptions made in these models are just so arbitrary. And so, you know, I can get a model to sing, I can get it to yell, I can get it to fall asleep. You know, it's all by what conditions I put into it. And I think, you know, the one that, uh, you know, again, uh, a personal friend I know who runs this, but I think the, uh, the challenge we have today uh, with the uh, IHME uh, models, uh, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, University of Washington, have really been a disservice. And they're always presented with such certainty around what the information is. And you know, we've gone back and looked at their estimates and they've been off routinely on the number of deaths. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, originally during uh, uh, March up through May, they were predicting how many cases would occur by the 4th of uh, August, uh, which would now come long past. Uh, you know, if you look at their, their deaths, the, this is the, the estimate that they came up with, 81,000 in March, 26, 81,000 uh, on 5th of April, 68,000 on the 3rd of April, 60,000 on the 17th of April, 134, 137, 125,000 respectively in May 4th, 10th, and 25th. Well, the actual number was 154,000. Now they kept changing this, okay? And they did provide confidence intervals, which for at least in the last two estimates, they overlapped 154. But if you go back and look at the pieces where they were on TV, you look at their statements in the media, it was presented with this certainty. And this is what the White House was using was this kind of precision, that there was no precision at all. If you look at what's happened since then, now they're looking at, if you look in June, for example, on June uh, uh, 11th, they basically put out an estimate for what it would be like on the uh, 1st of, of uh, October and said on that day, we'd have 169,890 cases, 169,890 cases. Well, as of today, we have over 167,000 cases already, of deaths, these are deaths, by the way, I should say, excuse me, they're deaths. And, and again, we're already there. Now they gave a confidence interval, which if you look at that, the confidence interval on June 11th was from 133,000 to 290,000. My God, you could drive five semis for that estimate. Is that really helping us? But when it's presented with the precision, it's going to be 169, and nobody in the media challenges it. No, I don't see anyone else in the government raising the questions, what does this really tell us? And this has happened over and over and over again. Now, more recently, they've been talking about what would happen if people did masking. And it, it says that if... And the most recent press release on August 6th said, and I quote, the U.S. forecast totals 295,000 deaths by December. As of today, when thus far 158,000 have died, IHME is projecting approximately 137,000 more deaths. However, starting today, if 95% of the people in the U.S. were to wear masks when leaving their homes, the total would be decreased by 228,271 deaths, a drop of 49%, and more than 66,000 lives would be saved. Boy, doesn't that sound great? There is no basis for that whatsoever. If you look at the assumptions they've made about mask wearing and protection, they don't hold up. Yet if I read that, that's with such precision, and that's what the public is getting. So I challenge the modelers to stop being 
so certain of themselves and detail all of the challenges and don't say that just somehow they arbitrarily decided that certain percentage of people would be protected with masks or not without any data whatsoever to say that that were true. It's just not. And then in turn, basically using these estimates then, this is the kind of thing that's driving public policy about what's gonna happen or not. And so I, I, I urge that we have a new look at models. The media has to be part of that. Journal publications have to be part of this. Uh, and I can tell you over time, models do us more harm than good because once you start losing faith in them, you somehow come across with, well, they're just inflating the numbers or they're somehow you know, doing this or that, or they're giving you confidence intervals that are so wide, you're sitting there saying, now, I don't know what this means. You know, tonight you're gonna to be worth a penny or you may be worth a million dollars and somewhere in between. What does that tell you? So to answer the question, which I know have gone on about, you understand the frustration I have. And I, so I really understand your frustration and, 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 I, and I wish I had a better answer for you. All I can tell you is we will continue to try to be the best source we can. We will try to be as objective as we possibly can. I would urge all of you on the mask issue as an example. Uh, we have seen ongoing challenges with the masking and the example that you just saw in the first uh, uh, example I gave you about the protection and so forth. My commentary that's on our CIDRAP website talks about what we know and don't know about masking and what we need to do to find out. And we will just stick with that and try to you know, give you the best information we can. The bottom line message is everyone, the media, the journal editors, uh, and the authors, and any group that's putting out information needs to take more responsibility than they have, and they're not. And we should, you, you should be able to demand that. And I hope you do. So Mike, uh, we have a question now about uh, another topic that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. This is testing. Uh, so Amber writes, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio recently tested positive and then negative for COVID-19. How common are false positives and negatives? Well, thank you, Amber. Um, uh, I wish I knew. And what I mean by that is, is that um, today we still have a challenge with the tests that have been approved by the FDA for use and which kind? Are they basically the antigen test, the more rapid detection test? Are they the PCR test? Under what conditions are the PCR tests administered, the swabs, et cetera? Uh, how, how is this done? Um, and so at this point, uh, I, I would say that um, the vast majority of PCR tests we're seeing today are actually quite reliable and that uh, I would feel confident that if I got a positive uh, from one of the standard testing procedures that that would be a true positive. I think when you start getting to these rapid tests, point of care tests, the bigger problem typically has been a false negative, meaning that it's negative when you really are positive, and that's when the big challenge has been trying to protect people. Uh, I think what happened with Governor DeWine, uh, to the best we all know, and I only know through the media, uh, that uh, this is what happened, um, you know, I'm sure they're looking at that, why that occurred. Uh, I'm assuming that because the president was coming and he would be seeing the president, they were using the Abbott ID test kit, which is what they have typically used to try to bubble around the president, which has been, again, more of a problem with false negatives than false positives. So this is a challenge. Uh, we need new and better testing technology. Testing is still a real challenge in this country. 
Um, we have, uh, uh, I think, a, an ever-increasing uh, risk right now of running out of testing for uh, the really essential areas that we need it in just because of reagents and the kinds of uh, testing machine and, and, and various component pieces that go with these tests. Um, and so it, it, it's a mess. Um, you know, we've been talking about it on this podcast dating back to April that uh, we needed a national plan. We still don't have it. Um, we really need to understand what are the essential issues of testing? Um, what are the component pieces, for example, manufacturing? How do we get these uh, supply chains to fulfill this? Um, when do we use what test where? Um, you know, if we're trying to determine for certainty if someone have the virus or not, how sensitive or specific does the test actually have to be? I'm worried about the issue with antibody testing. We're seeing more and more people clamoring for it, where again, as I've just been talking about antibody, uh, it's a real challenge. We don't know what it means yet. We don't know how long you're protected. And so um, this will go down as one of the uh, failures of our pandemic response in this country. And let me add, this hasn't happened in other countries. Other countries which have used more generic testing, meaning they didn't buy into one of the commercial test uh, machines, et cetera, uh, have actually done much better. And uh, this is part of, you know, as I talked about trying to learn from other countries about how to respond to this to hold case numbers down. One of the things that is also to their advantage is they have gotten a lot of the testing issues down right that we haven't. We can still do a better job. We can still fix a lot of that, but um, uh, we're not at the rate we're going right now. I just don't see the will to do that. So just a reminder to everyone that this is a live episode of the Osterholm Update podcast. And if you want to send us a question, uh, you can tweet us using the hashtag Osterholm Update Live. Uh, we've got a ton of great questions so far. We're trying to get to as many as possible. Um, so we have a question now, and this is actually uh, two related questions that have to do broadly with uh, family get-togethers in the midst of COVID-19. So one is from Daniel, who asks whether it's safe to have an outdoor wedding. And the other is from David, who has a two-month-old daughter, and he's getting some family pressure to see the new baby. And he wants to get your thoughts on outdoor visits that would include, that would include family members holding the baby. Well, I hope this is the one area that I can actually be helpful in a positive way tonight. Um, you know, we've talked before about the uh, benefit of outdoor air and the dissipation of the virus into the air, whether it's daytime or nighttime. Uh, and with uh, the idea of the infectious dose being part of all this, something we're still working on, we haven't forgotten, we literally work on this every day. But uh, I am absolutely comfortable uh, and I've shared this and had these discussions with the people working on the infectious dose issue that this is not again, again, a tag like environment where if I just walk by somebody, I'm, I'm now infected. It is time and dose, meaning I have to breathe in for some period of time, a certain amount of the virus before I get infected. And um, when you're outdoors and you're uh, separated from people at least 10 feet, eight, 10 feet, um, this is really a, a very, very low risk situation. So I would do what I've come to do with my own family, okay? And as everyone in this podcast has been following it knows, my five grandchildren are everything to me. They are everything. Um, is the matter of it's limited time. So if I were at a wedding, if everyone agrees, it has to be outdoors. You can't have it indoors, part for the reception. You can't have six people go in one car to get to the location. But if you basically pot up, if you're already living with someone, they can go in the car with you, et cetera. If you stay eight to 10 feet away outdoors, 
uh, you know, you can be out there and I think you can attend that wedding. Okay. Um, I don't, however, uh, say that that's going to be easy because then people after the event goes on for a while, they get a little closer, they start socializing more. If alcohol gets involved at an outdoor reception, then people start to get closer and closer. If you have little kids there, they don't understand this close thing. What do you mean I got to stay apart? And so I think uh, in that regard, if you can manage that distance, then I think you're fine. As far as the newborn baby, oh my, if I were a grandparent, I'd absolutely want to hold that baby, okay? Um, and so I think that too is fine. One minute, hold the baby, you know, enjoy it for everything you possibly can, and then hand the baby back and, you know, make sure that uh, you're distancing again. Uh, you know, you don't want the baby handed to 22 people and for the next 30 minutes uh, out there in all those arms. But if you did the very limited kind of driveway or backyard kind of encounter, I think this is exactly how we have to get through the pandemic. I think those are very, very low risk situations. And I personally would feel comfortable doing them with my own family. Um, but again, I got to be disciplined about staying the distance. Okay, you can't start to slip. Um, and remember in the case of the newborn, uh, as well as in the wedding, I have seen far too many situations and have actually personally know people where someone got infected at one of those events. And more often than not, it was a young, healthy individual who was infected, didn't realize that infected grandpa and grandma or uh, one of the neighbors, an older neighbor who then got infected and died. Uh, that's the challenge. You don't want that to happen. So be mindful of the time and distance, and, but don't stay away. Don't, don't put a wall up. And, uh, you know, you're there to protect your, your parents or grandparents as much as they're there to protect the baby. And just keep that in mind. And if you do that, I think you, you'll get the best out of the pandemic you can, uh, at the same time being very responsible and protecting yourselves. So Mike, we have a, a question now that comes from Dean. And this kind of gets um, to uh, the earlier point you were making about your New York, New York Times op-ed and, and, and a, a, a six-week lockdown. Um, Dean writes, with the large number of COVID-19 cases in the US, can contact tracing even be for, performed effectively and from, a res re and from a resource perspective, even if test results are immediate? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, to follow on to one of my uh, common sayings about this, to try to put it into some perspective, trying to do contact tracing under these conditions in this country is largely like trying to plant your petunias in a Category 5 hurricane. Okay, it's just, it's useless. And uh, that's why we have to drive it down. I, you know, I think contact tracing is a challenge anyway just based on the asymptomatic nature of infection, people's concerns about disclosing information, how do we take care of people who are notified in terms of making sure they're isolated from someone else uh, in the public uh, if we don't have the resources to help them be isolated. Uh, there's just a lot of challenges with this. We did a viewpoint document on our website on contact tracing with some of the best experts in the world over the past several decades doing contact tracing, and I'd urge you to go take a look at that document. So I agree completely. I don't think it is possible. That's why right now, you know, short of bringing these case numbers down, I don't know what in the hell to do. I mean, I'm sitting here saying, you know, try to get test results back, try to limit your contact, but the numbers are so huge. It is like taking the only fire truck in the whole county to fight that 800,000 acre fire. You know, it's just not going to do anything. And so we've got to get them down to brush fires. And the only way we're going to do that is we got to basically smother this virus. 
And that's why I keep coming back to the only practical thing that will work is to basically limit contact with people for six weeks, break the number of cycles you can of transmission and get them down. Then I think we have an opportunity where we can do these things. It'd still be a challenge, still be a challenge, but we'll be in a whole different world than we are now. So we're getting close to the end of our hour here, Mike, but I have a couple more questions I think we can get in. Uh, so one is from Eric. And he, he uh, Eric notes that the media always reports cumulative COVID-19 cases in the U.S. or in individual states. Uh, and he wonders whether the general public should be concerned with cumulative cases. He asks, shouldn't the focus be more on the incidents in the past 30 days and hospitalization rates? Eric is an epidemiologist if he didn't know it already. Okay, you're absolutely right. Uh, that, that's what we follow. Uh, and even there, I tend to follow, uh, more importantly, hospitalizations and deaths, even though they're at the end of the kind of uh, pathway, you might say, the, the things that happened three or four weeks ago now being counted now, because they're the one of the few things that are constant. Testing can have such an impact on case numbers. Uh, and so, you know, as we've talked about many, many times, uh, you know, we're probably catching at best right now 10 to 12% of all the cases as part of our counted cases versus what's occurring in our communities. And so, you know, if you could double testing, you could double the case number and it still doesn't mean you know exactly what's going on. So uh, I worry as we run out of testing in some areas, case numbers are going to start coming down where then people will believe that somehow we've limited transmission, artificial. So uh, you're absolutely right. We want to know incidents, first of all. We're, we no longer, I mean, uh, I, I sometimes it, it makes me feel really almost kind of nauseated because I still can't get over the fact that every one of these millions of people is a loved one, somebody's loved one. But we start to count them almost like the Dow Jones. You know, the case numbers are up this much today. And, and what we need to do from a public health standpoint is know what's happening in the last two to three weeks. What is it? That's, is it going up? Really, is it going down? And hospitalizations and deaths, unfortunately, are still pretty uh, constant numbers for us out there. So I put that into context every day with when the new numbers come in. I try to look in the new numbers to say, where are they coming from? May not be quantitatively right, but qualitatively it really is important because suddenly if we start seeing all of a sudden long-term care facilities again, or we start seeing certain work areas, or we start seeing university campuses light up, uh, et cetera, that's telling us that something else is happening. And so, and again, that's only relevant within the last uh, 14 to, to 21 days. So you're 100% right in your question, and uh, it's what we try to do, and that's what we follow very carefully to understand what's going on. Last question here from Dylan, uh, and this is uh, it's, it's a bit of a somber note, um, but this I know this is an issue that's really important to you, Mike, so I want to ask about it. So Dylan writes, with almost 1,000 healthcare workers killed from work, workplace-related exposures, how can we better protect our healthcare workers? How do we make sure they're not left behind? This is a hard one, and um, not to, to pile on, but actually the most recent number we've gotten is it's closer to 1,400 healthcare workers in this country have died. Now, a number of them are not occupationally acquired. They are part of working in the community, living in the community, but many of them are. And uh, I, I, I agree with you. It's about uh, personal protective equipment. It's about the ability to make sure that that equipment is readily available. It's readily used. You're taught how to use it appropriately um, and what we need to do. So 
uh, this is a huge issue. I mentioned several uh, podcasts ago about an effort we're working on right now to establish a fund to uh, help families who've lost loved ones uh, to COVID-19 who work in the healthcare area. We actually have some very big meetings about that this week. Uh, we'll be making some announcements in the near future. Uh, and uh, my heart just goes out to these people. And you know, some of the most tragic stories I hear, um, and everyone's tough, everyone's hard, doctors and, and nurses and so forth. And I surely don't want to, to sound like somehow I'm trying to distinguish one's a, a worse death than the other. But how many stories I know of today of nursing assistants, housekeeping, um, station clerks, all who have been involved with COVID work in hospitals who have gotten ill and died. And they were the sole breadwinner for two or three children. Uh, those are tragic. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I hope every doctor's family where someone has died, uh, my, I'm sorry, my, my, I, I can't express in adequate terms uh, just how tough that is. But I hope that financially you're in better shape than these families that when they lose a loved one, uh, and that was the sole breadwinner for, for that family of young kids, how tragic that is. And so we got to help them. We got to prevent them from getting infected to begin with. We've got to do much more on the PPE. And we're we working on that. Trust me, we are. Uh, but also we got to take care of them from a society standpoint. You know, they're our frontline heroes. And uh, so thank you for that question. Um, and uh, I hope everyone in this uh, podcast never forgets that in your own communities, what can we do to help our healthcare heroes? If nothing else, just put a sign up saying, how thank you. Thank you. So Mike, now I want to get to uh, what has become uh, my favorite part of the podcast when you have some surprise lyrics or, or, or a poem for us. And I think uh, my sense is that uh, our, our listeners uh, really like this too. So uh, what are your closing thoughts for this live episode of the Osterholm Update? Well, you know, uh, I've heard from so many of you and thank you again. Thank you for the emails as uh, the the crew here who are responsible for putting this podcast on, who educate me and keep me propped up, um, uh, will tell you, we read every one of your emails. You know, I try to respond as many as I can. They also respond. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep them coming. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we hear over and over again from people is, you know, you, you want to help, you want to do what you can. And, and I think that one of the things we'll try to do a better job of is just coming up with ideas. And in fact, we welcome your ideas about how can someone in a community help with this issue? You know, our pandemic of kindness is spreading. It is, it's absolutely spreading. I, I've personally seen it. Um, but so today I, I picked a, a, a verse that uh, has meant a lot to me for many, many decades. And I read this almost as if it's my, uh, my morning prayer sometimes, and it's really been a guiding light in my career, as well as who I am personally. And this is actually from Edward Everett Hale, uh, who, who was born in 1822, uh, died in 1909. He was an American author and historian and uh, uh, was very gifted, very gifted in, in his way with words. And this is a... a a segment he wrote in a, a larger book, but it says, I am only one, but I still am one. I cannot do everything, but I can still do something. 
And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. And I hope for all of us, we think about that. What can we do this week? How can I help? Where can I help? How can I help someone uh, you know, who, who, who needs a helping hand right now, who's feeling scared? Uh, you know, that's the other thing I've heard over and over again. You know, I sure hope you didn't have to wait for this podcast to feel okay about feeling scared because uh, some people wrote in and said, thank you for affirming that. Hey, listen, we're all there, okay? But so I, I, I come back to this uh, and just say, don't refuse to do something that you can do. Find a way this week to do that. And, uh, and I, I know that that will be part of the kindness. That'll be part of what uh, uh, makes us a very special group of people. Um, you are special. You know, for those who are tuning in for the first time, wondering who this wacko scientist type guy is who's out there saying all these crazy things, you who've been with us for a while know there's something here. There is something here that is really, really important, and we're, we're capturing it. And so this to me is my closing and saying that uh, you're not going to refuse to do something this week, okay? That's your charge. And uh, I can't wait until hopefully soon to tell you about what we're going to do for healthcare workers. So with that, thank you so much for listening tonight. Thank you for being here. I can only imagine all the people that are out there, uh, you know, welcome to my little part of the world. This is where I reside almost 28 hours a day. <laughs> Most of my days right now is right here. Um, and uh, thank you for being here. It, uh, it means the world to me and to all of us here at SIDRAP. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Osterholm, and thanks again to everyone who tuned into this live episode of the Osterholm Update and to those who sent us questions. Also, a special thanks to podcast producers Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich for making this all happen. We'll be back next week with another episode.